Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a very special guest, Lieutenant General Retired In Bum Chun, who is a legend in the Korean Army, is with us. And, you know, I met him recently working on a project in which I'm trying to better understand assurance and the desire amongst South Koreans to have either a return of American nuclear weapons or an independent nuclear arsenal. And so we had a chance to talk. And after talking with him, I was like, we've got to have him on Nuclecast because other folks need to hear from him. So with that, General Chun, welcome to Nuclecast. Thank you very much for the invitation. So it was, uh, it was truly a pleasure talking with you before, and I thought our audience, who is an audience, you know, it's primarily American, and it's dispersed of people that are, mili- you know, U.S. Air Force, Navy, civil servants in the nuclear enterprise. It's Scott Lab scientists who listen. It's sort of a contractors in D.C. It's a pretty disparate group but it's a lot of folks across the nuclear enterprise. And for most of them, they, they may have spent, you know, they may have had an assignment in Korea for a year or two, but most folks don't really have a good grasp of the Korean perspective on North Korea and on the South Korean aspirational goal and support for primarily an independent nuclear program and nuclear arsenal. Could you perhaps lay out for the listeners that the threat as South Koreans see it and why they feel an independent arsenal is probably, you know, a requirement for South Korea? First, Adam, again, uh, let me thank you for the invitation. And I just want to start by saying that to the American people, Uh, The Korean people, especially the Republic of Korea, owes our existence, our development, our prosperity, our democracy to the support that the American people have provided to us. And I thank the mothers and fathers, the brothers and sisters who sent their sons and daughters to this country for the past 70 plus years, which has enabled us to do what we have done right now. To give you an answer as to why we want our own Uh, deterrence capability. It's very simple. We live next to the Chinese. We've been living next to them for the past 5,000 years, and it was not a good experience. Now, rolling back to history, it's only been like, what, 30, 40 years since we thought China might have changed and that uh, there was some sort of new type of uh, capitalism that could be accommodating with communism, Chinese-style communism, 
which brought prosperity to their people. And now we realize that uh, all along the Chinese leadership, it's in their nature to try to dominate the world. Well, they're going to start here on the Korean Peninsula. That's why we feel that we need to have something that can scare the Chinese or give, make them think uh, twice before they do that. The North Koreans are, are maybe second or third uh, concern. So primarily our concern is the Chinese. Please do not think that we, cannot, we are not uh, untrustworthy of the United States. We know that the United States will uh, fulfill its commitments, but at the same time, we know that the American people are a good-hearted people, and 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 your adversaries, especially the the cruel and evil ones, they measure your strength not by the number of nuclear weapons that you have, but by the but by, by the level of cruelty that you are able to conduct, and in that uh, bar, they think they have the upper hand, and so for us Koreans, we're concerned that. Uh, the United States might not be as cruel as it needs to be when it comes to dealing with adversaries like China or other evil uh, nations around the world. So you mentioned China is is sort of this preeminent threat. And for some, you know, my, you know, I went to graduate school and my minor field was modern Chinese history. And so I'm, I would never call myself a sinologist, but I am familiar with Chinese history, and I think many Americans have a difficult time understanding Chinese culture and that there is a distinctly different way of looking at the world and of thinking about family, of thinking about hierarchy, and of thinking about the value of human life, because, you know, we're a wealthy, prosperous society, and so we basically want the world to stay the same because it benefits us and we're pretty fat, dumb, and happy. And for the Chinese, they're looking to change the world. For somebody who sits next door to them and is south of a North Korea that has worked closely with both the Russians and the Chinese, how do you see sort of this very difficult geographic location playing out and how do you see this sort of interaction between South Korea and China? So for us Koreans, we're in a very difficult situation. We, we're in the smack middle of China and the sea powers, which starts with Japan and extends to the United States. And then we have another adversary, which is Russia. Russia has always wanted a warm water port uh, in, in their eastern territories. And the ideal port, of course, is the Wonsan Harbor uh, or Wonsan Port or even Pusan. So these interests collide right on the Korean Peninsula. Among all the nations that have interest on the Korean Peninsula, it seems to me I'm always in a position where I have to convince my American friends the value of the Koreans. So... Um, living here in this very critical and important piece of uh, uh, land is, 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 
is a fortune for us, but at the same time, it's a curse because everybody wants it. Now, you know, I dare tell you that if the, if you lose Korea, if Korea were to fall under uh, the Asian continent powers influence, I'll say it, China, then Japan is next. It's just, you know, it's just a given. And if you lose Japan, the United States loses the Pacific. So I think that uh, the, the, these perspectives are very important for the United States. For us Koreans, we're in a quagmire. And so, you know, we can't do this and we can't do that. Uh, there are no good options for us. So for us, uh, our best bet is to try to somehow um, have enough influence and strength to um, survive in this uh, difficult area. Yeah, it is, uh, it is certainly a challenging geographic position. And I, I think back to Korean history and how has, you know, Korea has always been a very challenging place. How has Korea handled its geographic position? You know, you've had invasion from the Chinese, you've had invasion from the Japanese. Uh, how have you managed as a, you know, as a people group to sort of survive being in the difficult geography you're in? The Chinese often refer uh, Korea as a fiefdom. And to be honest with you, we Koreans had to su submit to Chinese indirect rule for about a thousand years. So there's no uh, going around that fact. Uh, when you're under the influence of somebody else for a thousand years, you forget that you're under the influence of somebody else. But you do remember you didn't like it. So, you know, the Chinese, um, they think that they're the center of the universe. And there are many good good virtues in, in China. So, you know, I, I don't want to debate who's right or who's wrong, but I do want to debate that we all have the right to choose our destiny. And right now, China is saying it's my way or the highway. And that's where I have a problem. So if the Chinese really want to, you know, uh, propel their uh, values, they should win fair and square, not try to bully their values on us. So, so that's what we've been submitted to, and that's what we don't like. And I, I wonder, is trying to think through the sort of second and third and fourth order effects of Korea developing an independent nuclear arsenal, which is, you know, it's it's a debate right now and there's you know a majority of Koreans would like to see that happen you know Americans would like Korea to stay under the nuclear umbrella of the United States but for good reason Koreans have a reticence that will will you you know will the United States trade LA San Francisco for Seoul and this is something you know the Europeans wondered during the Cold War and so it's not a new or unique concern, and it's a valid one. Uh, 
But I wonder, have you thought, since we've mostly been talking about China thus far, have you thought through how China might respond and, you know, what their strategy would be if if Korea, South Korea, would were to go nuclear? Um, I've not given that much thought to it, but uh, what what else can they do that they have not already done? Now, going back to Koreans wanting their own nuclear weapons, right now, even the most conservative polls show that seven out of 10 Koreans want their own nuclear weapons. I say yes, but not at the price of the ROC-US alliance. And we Koreans have another problem, our indifference to our own security. <laughs> yes, you heard it right. <laughs> we're, we're, we're indifferent and we're sometimes unwilling to make the sacrifices for our own security and rely on the United States too much. So unless we get over that mentality, having nuclear weapons of our own might be actually more dangerous. And even if we did have nuclear weapons, we would need to have a very complex arrangement with our ally, the United States, as to the employment and operation, safety, all of those things with the United States. So um, I would say even if you called it an indigenous you know, Korean nuclear arsenal, it's, it would be an extension of, U, uh, of the U.S. Uh, uh, nuclear force uh, on the Korean Peninsula. So um, I think that uh, that's something that needs to be thought about. So right now, we think the Chinese have 300 nuclear capable missiles, and they're going to go to 1,500. Do you think out of the 300, at least one or two are right now targeted to uh, the Korean Peninsula, to South Korea? I think so. So what are they going to do? Uh, increase that to six or, or 60? So we, that's why we need a THAAD, and I think we need a couple of more batteries like that. We need some medium missile systems. We need more better defense against nuclear weapons. But the ultimate answer for us would be a the only proven strategy, which is mutual assured destruction, either is provided by the United States or by the South Koreans. Now, again, I think our adversaries do not think that we are cruel enough uh, as as uh, need be to employ nuclear weapons. And I'm sorry to say this, but cruel people, vicious, evil people will only understand, you know, they're, they're same kind of logic. And so that's, again, is my concern and probably a lot of Koreans. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. It's it's certainly a a good point in just thinking back to, you know, the 20th century where, you know, Mao Zedong, in order to hold power, was willing to sacrifice tens of millions of his own Chinese citizens. And, you know, if you go back to the Korean War 
and Chinese involvement, I mean, it was wave attacks that were, you know, sacrificing tens of thousands of, you know, sort of poorly equipped and poorly trained Chinese soldiers in the hope of overwhelming, you know, the U.S. rock uh, soldiers that, you know, it's just bigger numbers and they thought they could potentially win that way. So there, there is a strong tradition in China of sacrificing the individual for, you know, the, the collective. And I, I wonder as, as we talk about this is, does South Korea see itself akin to, you know, we have the, the U S has the larger nuclear arsenal, and then we have this strong ally in the British who have a smaller second independent arsenal that, you know, should something fail in the U S they're still the British. Do you, do the South Koreans sort of see themselves in a similar light of being this, you know, ally of the U S that could have a, you know, independent, strong, arsenal that, you know, was there to integrate with the U.S. and if that time of need came? You know, um, the resistance to Koreans having nuclear weapons is so strong, I have not even thought of it that way. But from my experience, Japan will have a very difficult time going nuclear. There, there exists within Japan's Japanese society a very strong anti-nuclear group and it would be a long way before Japan ever went uh, on that road. On the other hand, for the South Koreans, yes, I think that is uh, an option for us. Like I said, even if we had our own nuclear weapons, it would only make sense that we would be integrated very closely with the United States in, his, in its development, safety, and eventual operation. And you know, although there are seven or eight people out of 10 who want South Korean nuclear weapons, if we, if we start talking about, okay, uh, here are the options. We have conventional munitions that can actually do this and that and this. A lot of people will say, well, maybe we don't need nuclear weapons. So, But until now, we have not had that discussion. And I think the Biden administration and the unit administration just started that. Hopefully, it'll get us to better understanding of each other's position and why we want nuclear weapons or why we don't want nuclear weapons. But again, it's a dangerous world, and, it, and we did not create the problem. Now let's, let's remember that. The Chinese have to st st uh, change their way of thinking and their way of uh, the, the direction with which they're progressing. Now, we haven't really talked much about North Korea, the DPRK. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's sort of funny. There are some South Koreans I talk with that focus solely on the DPRK. And then some say, you know, the DPRK is bad, but China is the future threat. And this seems to be essentially what you're saying is that China is the big long-term threat. But what about sort of the more immediate threat of the DPRK? How do you see, you know, is it something, you know, I, I've wondered, because I always like to sort of reason in analogies, and I wonder, do South Koreans see the DPRK in some respects the way that the Indians see Pakistan, where for the Indians, 
they see Pakistan as as a problem, but they're but they're like, ah, oh, we understand the Pakistanis. You know, they used to be us, but the Chinese, they're the big threat. And the, I remember the first time I went to China, to uh, to India to talk about you know, Indian nuclear issues. And they said, no, 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 it's not the Pakistanis. The problem is the Chinese. And so I, I sort of wonder by reasoning through analogy, is there a similar view in South Korea that you understand the North Koreans and therefore you think you can manage that threat more effectively? Or is is it, is, am I reading that wrong? I think it's a little different here. The North Koreans... Uh, the Kim family, it's built in their DNA to communize or put the entire Korean peninsula under the Kim family's rule. I think it is something that the Kim family thinks is their divine duty. So if they have the opportunity, they will try to subvert and uh, use force to uh, communize the entire peninsula. Even now, it's astonishing, but there is a subversive uh, movement in South Korea using the very liberal society that we have created. So that's a big problem for us. China, again, is, you know, Adam, China, the the, the way of thinking and all that, it's, it's part of me, you know, it's, it's, it's part of my DNA, but you know, uh, I like their art. I like their some some of their music, uh, pottery, and all that stuff. But that's as far as it goes. You know, um, the Chinese really look down on the Koreans, and so it's it's different for us. Now, talking about North Korea, just a couple of days ago, 27 July was the 70th year of the signing of the armistice. And we had a lot of celebrations uh, celebrating the um, opportunity that the armistice has brought to the Korean Peninsula. For the North Koreans, they call it their victory day over the Americans. This is how absurd their thinking is. But during the three day uh, celebration in North Korea, uh, the defense minister of Russia visited, as well as a very senior uh, Chinese delegation. And you should have seen the weapon systems that the Ch North Koreans displayed, um, presumably for sale. And, uh, you know, it's, I've always said we should be aware of what the, not only what the North Koreans are showing us, but what the North Koreans are not showing us. You know, all their tanks and all the, conventional stuff that they're developing, they look very much like this uh, equipment that you can see in Iran. So either the North Koreans are providing technology to Iran or the Iranians are providing technology to the North Koreans and one is building off the other, but the tanks look very similar. The weapon systems, the conventional weapon systems look very similar. So we have a, we have a, we have a problem uh, in that uh, there is cooperation, uh, a very healthy cooperation between the North Koreans and the Iranians. So uh, I, I, I really fear that within maybe five, ten years, North Koreans will probably succeed in having a capability to strike the continent of the United States 
and with that false uh, assurance that they will not be retaliated upon, I mean, what kind of brinkmanship that they will be uh, up to, uh, which will really cause uh, high tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, I think I I saw, you know, they had a recent ICBM test, and I think I saw that that the burn on that ICBM was 70 seconds, which would, would mean it was capable of, of hitting the U.S., you know, assuming it was they have sort of the, the guidance systems to make all that happen. So they're certainly, you know, watching their ballistic missile tests, they're certainly making great progress in a very rapid pace. And I don't think many Americans realize this, but, you know, we spend, we've spent historically about $25 billion a year to, for the operations and maintenance of our arsenal. And then now, as we're modernizing, we're spending about $50 billion a year. But the Koreans, the North Koreans, for the first decade or so of their program, they spent a total of $8 billion to build a nuclear weapon, to test a nuclear weapon, to test some of the missiles. And so they, they're doing it much more cost-effectively than we are. And so when you when you think about you know they're they're the number one the global leader in in um, money laundering and counterfeiting and you know they're great cyber criminals and so they're finding ways to fund while their people may starve they're still finding ways to fund this ballistic missile and nuclear weapons program and and i i wonder just as you look at it how do you, how do you and other south koreans look north and and then see the progress that they're making and then what do you think i mean what what's your thought process as you see that well you know uh american scientists south korean scientists they enjoy uh eating prime rib and steak while the North Korean scientist is happy with a bowl of rice. And Kim Jong-un is a new type of leader. He, he is a person that thinks, yep, even if we fail, as long as we, as we learn something, it's not a total failure. So with that kind of mentality, he is backing uh, his, his uh, developers. If you look at the footage that the North Koreans uh, made public during the recent uh, so-called Victory Day uh, events, he was explaining to the Russian delegation the weapon systems. He seemed to be quite aware of the selling points or the uh, capabilities of his weapons. Do you think your political leaders can do that? So it's a combination of the willingness to sacrifice other things, uh, cheap labor, um, cutting costs uh, in areas where, you know, where we can't. There's no value-added tax in North Korea, for one thing. So those kind of things uh, provide him with advantages. One of my concerns is a nuclear accident in North Korea. I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll drop a wrench or something and start a chain reaction and, and cause a big explosion. So actually, I, I, I spend uh, some of my time praying that uh, 
the North Koreans have a good safety regime uh, set up. Yeah, it's and I think you and I were talking before the show, and and you mentioned that one of the things that struck you about this most recent parade, this Victory Day parade, was that all of the North Korean soldiers were smiling. Explain explain what you meant by that. So if you look at uh, footage, um, previous footage, North Koreans are very stern. You know, uh, they they they're grasping their weapons, showing their resolve to kill everything. But this time, I noticed that their uh, troops were actually smiling and grinning. So the first guy that I saw, I thought, well, that guy is not going to last long. But it was throughout the whole um, parade and to the whole troops. So what that tells me is somebody in their collective system um, came up with an idea. And it got processed and it got down to the troops. Or even if it was top down, the intent of the great leader was able to seep down all the way down to the troops. I think this shows that even in North Korea, although it's a dictatorship, they're able to exchange ideas and come up with, you know, uh, ways to uh, antagonize Korea and the international world. And so the moral of the story is we should never, ever underestimate North Korea. Yeah, that's a good point. So we're we're at that point in the show where I bring my genie out, and if I rub my magic lamp, and give you three, three wishes, because Bob, my genie, grants wishes. He grants wishes to every guest that comes on the show these days. Uh, what would your three wishes be? You know, I'm. I would first wish that. Uh, artificial meat, synthesized meat, would be developed right now so that we would not have to uh, be slaughtering livestock, make the world a lot better and probably uh, contribute to uh, climate, bettering climate change issues that we have. Secondly, uh, I I would hope that everybody uh, would compromise and... uh, be content with 50% of what they want and uh, live a happy life. And third, um, I would really like to uh, go visit the United States and go to that uh, Star Trek convention that I see that's happening because I've been a Trekkie all my life and I would really like to go and uh, uh meet all the like-minded Americans there. So <laughs> those are my three wishes. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Star Trek. So I'll, I was actually in a hotel. Uh, I was, I forget where I was, but I, and I didn't even know that there was a convention going on. And I stepped into the, you know, in, into the elevator and I looked to my right and I was like, that's Michael Dorn. That's Worf. What is Worf doing here? And and then I, you know, and I asked, I was like, hey, I just saw Michael Dorn in the elevator. And they're like, hey, there's a Star Trek convention going on. So uh, 
that was my brush with with Star Trek fame was being in the same elevator. So it's uh, I, I share you know hopefully you have the Paramount app uh, you know that we have so you can stream it because there's some new versions of Star Trek that that are really good. So if you if oh, you I, haven't I, seen that, you'll have to do that. I'm a traditional Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock guy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I guess if, if we, as we come to the end of the show, I would ask you what would be sort of the, the takeaway that you would offer for our American audience as they try to understand what's going on on the Korean Peninsula? Yeah, you know, please uh, show interest. But think of this. If the Chinese had 58,000 Chinese troops in Cuba, that's one thing. But if they had 30,000 soldiers in Tampa, that's another thing. If you look at Northeast Asia, you have 58,000 troops in Japan, and you have 28,500 soldiers on the Korean Peninsula. That's like having, you know, 28,500 Chinese troops in Florida. So I think uh, the United States, the American people need to really think about the value of Korea and what kind of uh, outpost it can be uh, furthering and maintaining and protecting U.S. interests. All right. Lieutenant General, retired Inbum Chun, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. Thank you again for the invitation. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we will see you on the next episode. Well, that was interesting. Hopefully you uh, found General Chun's perspective enlightening. I bet you didn't think he was going to say China, China, China. Uh, I bet you were thinking he was going to say North Korea, North Korea, North Korea. But I, you know, it's, it's probably there's, there's some who will say North Korea, North Korea, because it's sort of the devil, you know, Uh, but it's, you know, thinking long-term, I certainly understand why General Chun said China. And so that was an, that was an interesting discussion. It's always good. And, you know, because He's lived in the U.S., and so he sort of knows the U.S. pretty well, spent most of his career working with, you know, USFK. And so he knows the U.S. and he knows Americans. And so it was it was interesting to see somebody who knows Korea but knows the U.S. as well and give a perspective about the peninsula. So hopefully you found it interesting. I know I did. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.